Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for making AOA a part of your day today. We certainly appreciate it. We've got a lot to think about in the world of agriculture today. Of course, October has kicked off. That means harvest is underway for a lot of folks here throughout the middle section of the country. And it also means it's time to start preparing for next year and dealing with some of the pests that could be in your field. We'll talk to Dylan Mandel of the SCN Coalition here in just a minute. And then in segment two, we're going to talk with Glenn Tonser of Kansas State University, his latest Meat Demand Monitor is out. We'll get the latest data from Glenn. And then in segment three, Caitlin Glover, the executive director of the Public Lands Council, will be on the show. The PLC has been very active in the EPA versus Sackett's Supreme Court case that had oral oral arguments yesterday, all related to waters of the U.S. Caitlin will give us an update on how those oral arguments meant and or went and what to expect as that case moves forward. And we're going to close talking about the cattle market with our friend Chris Swift of Swift Trading. Let's begin with our friend Dylan here of the University of Nebraska. He is a plant pathologist over there. And Dylan, this time of year is the time to start looking for soybean cyst nematodes in the field. So let's talk a little bit about why October is Action Month. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. October is Action Month for soybean cyst nematode because that's when numbers of soybean cyst nematodes are going to be at their peak levels in those fields that just came out of soybean production. So those nematodes have been increasing. About every 28 days, they go through a life cycle, and, and they've been doing that all summer. So this is a great time to test because it's going to be the best time to see them if they are there, and we're going to be able to get a good number knowing it's that peak level. Dylan, we hear a lot about SCN as the growing season uh, is happening, but of course they are the most devastating pest in soybean yields here across the United States. What should farmers be watching for to see if there's an infestation? Yeah, so they're absolutely devastating. It's the number one biologic yield limiting agent of soybeans, causes up to $1.5 billion a year in U.S. of damage. But the big problem with soybean cyst nematode is you can have up to 30% yield loss with no significant above-ground symptoms. So you might not notice them above-ground unless numbers of soybean cyst nematode get extremely high, then you might see some patchy areas uh, with smaller plants. But the big problem is just that low level of yield loss that many producers are losing without knowing it. It is so frustrating for producers to see that low-level loss, but Dylan, for listeners who may be outside the world of row crop production, unfamiliar with the the soybean cyst nematode, what are they and how are they robbing yield? Yeah, so the soybean cyst nematode is is basically a small roundworm. It's too small to see uh, most of the time, Um, but they're robbing yield because they're, they're growing in those soybean fields. They're growing onto those soybean roots where they're they're basically feeding on those roots and, and just developing and, and multiplying in number. So it takes a lot of energy for them to complete their life cycle. And, and although you might not see it, they're pulling a lot of that that um, basically nutrients out of that plant and preventing that plant from putting as much yield on. Gotcha. So Dylan, if I've got a field and is SCN, are they only causing impact here in the Corn Belt? What is their geographic spread? Yeah, so they they were first identified on the East Coast in the 1950s, and then they were kind of identified across the Midwest. By 
they kind of moved across slowly. So they're soil born. So we're the ones who are moving them as, as we move equipment from infested fields to uninfested fields. We're kind of slowly working them west. And, and as of now, it's kind of in that Nebraska, North Dakota, South Dakota, Kansas, kind of working across those states. But basically everywhere east of there uh, in, in soybean or producing areas has, has pretty much has it. So, Dylan, I guess the challenge is if I'm not seeing any symptoms of an infestation in my field, how do I go about assessing my risk level as a producer? Absolutely. The first thing we the first thing we recommend is because we know this is in a lot of places and just because it's in your county or your area, it doesn't mean every every field has it. So the first thing we recommend is testing. You really need to test to know if it's there. And, and as part of SEN Action Month, uh, the SCN Coalition is partnering with BASF, and BASF is providing some free um, SCN soil testing kits. So if you go to scnactionmonth.com, you can get one of those kits. Uh, several states also offer testing programs, so talk to your local extension educators. But testing is the best way to tell if they're in that soil, and it shouldn't just be done to see if they're there, but also to see how those numbers are changing over time to determine if your management is working. Dylan, from a testing perspective, is this like soil sampling where we should do it numerous locations in a field since they are transported slowly, or is one spot enough to get a good test? Well, if you're going to test one spot, I'd test potential areas of of introduction, like field entrances, or maybe areas where you're where you're seeing some unexplained yield loss on that yield monitor. So you can just test preliminarily in some places, but what we recommend is is taking several soil samples across 20 acres or so and then submitting those and, and then doing grids like that because you really need to know where this problem is or especially what fields have it at least. So let's just say I do my test here during Action Month. I take advantage of the scnactionmonth.com website, get a soil test, and run the test. Let's say it th there are SCN, there's an impact in my field. What do the treatment management protocols look like? Well, fortunately, there are several management options. Uh, the first thing you want to do is is r rotate through resistant varieties. The most common resistant variety or resistance type you'll see in the in the seed catalogs is called PI88788. Unfortunately, that's been losing some of its resistance. Uh, so we recommend rotating between that and other resistant varieties. So we spread that out and decrease the chance that any more resistance development is going to evolve in these populations. Uh, in addition to rotating resistant varieties, we recommend rotating to a non-host crop. And fortunately, corn is a non-host crop, which works with many of these rotations that, that soybean producers are using. Um, that's not going to solve the problem, but that's going to decrease those numbers of, of, of cysts or nematode eggs in the soil. Uh, the next thing we recommend is consider the use of a nematode protectant seed treatment. There's a lot of new products coming onto the market. Uh, so talk to your local advisors and see what what would work best. But if you're going to use a seed treatment, always pair that with a resistant variety. A seed treatment's not going to be enough just on its own. And the last thing is just continue to test so you can tell if those management options are working for you. That's a great point, Dylan. The ongoing testing. Should we be testing soybean fields every year as they come out of production, particularly if you are east of the Missouri River? Yeah, if you've got a if you've got a state that has a good testing program or you've got a, a good testing option, um, it would be great to test every year. That's a lot of effort, though. So at least every three to five years, try and get in there and, and see if those man if your management is working. So t testing is the only way you're really going to see this. And if you're not watching it, it could get out of control and, and make a lot of other pathology problems even worse as well. 
All right, Dylan, before we let you go, you mentioned BASF has partnered with the SCN Coalition on those test kits. Tell our listeners one more time, where can they go to get signed up for those or get more information? Absolutely. You can you can go to the website at scnactionmonth.com for a free testing kit. And if you want more information on all of this, you can visit our website at the scncoalition.com. Fantastic, folks. We've been talking to Dylan Mangle. He is a plant pathologist at the University of Nebraska at Lincoln, serves on the SCN Coalition. Dylan, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. And folks, stick around. We're going to have our conversation with Dr. Glenn Tonser of Kansas State University next when we're going to talk about meat demand across the country. Stick around for more AOA. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. Tune in the first Wednesday of every month to listen to the monthly grind here on AOA. It's brought to you by our friends at the National Corn Growers Association, and each month we're going to dig into one specific aspect of corn demand. What happens to this grain after it leaves your operations and enters the global supply chain? That's what we're going to talk about each month on the monthly grind. Again, that's the first Wednesday of every month, and you can also find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. It's a show you don't want to miss. And we're live here outside the Perez family home just waiting for the... And there they go! Almost on time this morning. Mom is coming out the front door strong with a double-arm kid carry. Looks like Dad has the bags. Daughter is bringing up the rear. Oh, but the diaper bag wasn't closed. Diapers and toys are everywhere. Ooh, but Mom has just nailed the perfect car seat buckle for the toddler. And now the eldest daughter, who looks to be about 9 or 10, has secured herself in the booster seat. Dad zips the bag closed, and they're off. Ah, but looks like Mom doesn't realize her coffee cup is still on the roof of the car. And there it goes. Oh, that's a shame. That mug was a fam favorite. Don't sweat the small stuff. Just nail the big stuff. Like making sure your kids are buckled correctly in the right seat for their age and size. Learn more at NHTSA.gov slash the right seat. Visit NHTSA.gov slash the right seat. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. This is Ernie Johnson Jr. Sports is about overcoming obstacles. And college coaches work hard to help young men overcome Duchenne muscular dystrophy. It's called Coach to Cure MD and you can help. Text the word CURE to 501-501 to donate $25 on your next mobile phone bill. Or go online to coachtocuremd.org. Text the word CURE to 501-501. Help coaches cure MD. Brought to you by the American Football Coaches Association. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover key tar from your 80s cover band? 
Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. AOA continues today talking about the aspects of agriculture that certainly matter to our bottom line and to our futures. And one of those is consumer demand for protein. Of course, that is the backbone of a lot of what we built here in agriculture. And it's been a volatile sector as inflation has ripped through the U.S. economy. It's got market watchers wondering how the U.S. consumer is going to adapt to this new era. And luckily, we've got a new tool at our disposal. We've got the Meat Demand Monitor. Monitor a project by Dr. Glenn Tonser down there at Kansas State University in partnership with some great organizations. And he joins us today for the latest breakdown. Dr. Tonser, thanks for talking with us today. Oh, good morning, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Let's uh, introduce the Meat Demand Monitor, if you would, just briefly. What all are you watching here, Glenn, and how does it work? Yeah, so the Meat Demand Monitor is, as you said, based at K-State. It's a joint project with the pork and beef checkoff. Uh, it's a nationally ongoing survey of U.S. residents, and we're watching sort of all things meat, uh, even more broadly protein. So, um, you know, the beef, the pork, the chicken complex, as well as some seafood and even the plant-based category. Uh, we're watching what you said you had yesterday, uh, some demand measures, importance of price, and the like. Uh, you can find all that information on our Ag Manager website. Uh, you and I here in our limited time will hone in on what the month of September looked like and then some nuggets specific to inflation, as you noted in your opening. Absolutely, Glenn. So let's dive into it. One of the things that we've seen over the past months when we've talked about the meat demand monitor is there has been a sizable segment of the population who's just been willing to pay more for the these protein cuts as their prices have increased. Is that sizable portion still there? Uh, it's there, but it's shrinking. This is kind of a summary statement. I always tell people, remember, we are a large and diverse country. Um, so there's still a segment that probably has net wages that are still up because they've had a job change and so forth. But unless that's the case, you find yourself with your household being pinched uh, even more narrowly um, for country on average since the second quarter of 2020. Uh, there's been a net decline in real pay. So pay has not kept up with the cost of you know, typically you know, the basket of things we buy. And meat is not immune from that. So there is a segment that is still willing to pay. And there's a lot of signs that people want to keep meat protein in their diet. But I want to emphasize they're doing that in different ways. So, you know, some of the things that we're highlighting at the end of this MDM report every month now is what changes you're making. And there's a sizable portion, like over a fourth of the residents are buying a lower volume or buying a cheaper cut or maybe buying a smaller package size uh, or maybe some of all three in response. In response to these prices, then, Glenn, have we seen particular segments or particular categories that you track have a larger drop in the willingness to pay than others? Uh, it, a, a little bit, but the real story is they're all declining. So uh, across the board for September 22, uh, retail, so think grocery store for at-home consumption, uh, the beef, the pork, the chicken, and the seafood categories that we track, demand was weaker than it was both in August of 22 as well as in September of 21. So month over month as well as year over year declines. When you flip over to food service, uh, specifically we're looking at the dinner meal, what you would pay for a um, night out away from home, is again, our beef, pork, and chicken categories 
Um, they've weakened since August, but fortunately they're still above the year-ago levels. Um, that's a general statement across all people, right? So for the country, that would hold. Uh, I was trying to allude to this a little bit earlier. The group that has had a pay raise, uh, there's a lot of discussion about the tight labor market and quote-unquote flipping jobs and so forth. Um, they are in a position to where maybe they are ahead financially compared to a year ago, um, but that describes sort of a minority, not the majority of the population. Glenn, uh, on the other side of the protein spectrum, of course, the animal-based proteins you track, we've also had a lot of discussion recently about the drop-off in plant-based proteins. We've seen their market share declining, and JBS just announced the closure of one of their plant-based brands. Is that data being reflected in the meat demand monitor? Are you seeing a decline for alt proteins? Yeah, so uh, you know, I, I noted earlier the decline in the traditional livestock-based meat proteins. That decline is actually even stronger here in September for the plant-based uh, patty space. Specifically, let's talk about the food service channel. Uh, September, uh, the willingness to pay for a plant-based patty meal uh, was down not only versus August, but also a year ago. Uh, conversely, the beef and pork categories that you know we track, they were down compared to August, but not to the year before. So the pullback is stronger in the plant-based category, and that is consistent with what you're seeing in the news. Uh, Mike, I always interject here, that doesn't mean that category is going away, um, but I do think some of the hot discussions and a little bit of the fat around it have eased over the last certainly 18 months. That makes sense, Glenn. As you as you mentioned earlier in the in the interview here, you're seeing people make changes to how they secure protein and the particular protein they secure. Conventional wisdom is when folks are standing at the meat case and they're looking at high priced beef and they see disc or relatively cheaper pork, a lot of times they'll make the decision to buy pork. Is that a, a is that something you're seeing borne out in the data? Is that one of the are people switching from beef to pork in their buying habits? I mean, there's a little bit of that, but I actually think there's more of, let's say you want to get a beef steak, but you're changing which one. And I always use the ribeye to sirloin example. Um, or if you plan to buy a pork chop, but you find it's not featured and it's a little more expensive than you thought, maybe you switch to ham. So there's actually just as much switching sort of within the species category. Uh, that's not to say you don't have some of the beef to pork or pork to chicken. I mean, you're right with your intuition that occurs too. Um, but there's more and more examples where folks sort of stay within their species category also. Uh, some of that, I think, was knowledge and comfort with how to cook it. I mean, if you're not knowledgeable and comfortable cooking all the products I just mentioned, then you're not going to switch, almost regardless of the price. Um, so that consumer knowledge and awareness comes to play in this discussion as well. Well, that certainly makes some sense. You know, one place we have seen the impact of higher inflation hit even harder, Glenn, as you well know, is the restaurant space. Food service has been buffeted by tight labor and, of course, higher food prices. In your data, are consumers still choosing more to, to go out to eat? Is that category still climbing in total dollars spent? It, it, it is up compared to a year ago, is the best way I'd describe that. Um, but there's weakness there, too. I don't want to mislead people. There's weakness in both channels. Uh, the food service side held up a little bit better when I compare to August more narrowly. And uh, I think this is alluded to, your two or three of your questions to me are kind of dissecting or attempting to dissect the U.S. population. Um, I'm actually talking to you from Colorado because I'm giving some talks with the pork industry this week. Uh, those of us that, you know, at least certain times of the year live on the road, um, obviously are going to be doing more food service oriented, you know, consumption. And there's some more staying power with that if you're doing it for business. And I, I think business travel, while it isn't what it was pre-COVID, is back up, is why I'm alluding to that. And I think that's given some additional support to the food service channel. Conversely, when we go to retail, you know, most of us are wearing our private resident hat when we're doing that. And I think that's where we're seeing the tightening the belt most narrowly. Um, quickly, if I can, you know, plug another resource, the so way you teed this up for the MVM, 
Justin Bean is a PhD student here at K-State's helped me build what we call a dashboard. So you can visually see how things vary around the country and specifically the importance of price, which is what the theme of your and I's discussion here this morning uh, shows up. And there's a lot of variation around the country on the importance of price. So not just across market channel, like you and I just got done talking about, but state by state. And price is growing in importance nationwide, but it's growing more in the Midwest. And actually Iowa and Kansas are two of the states that we have some of the highest numbers where price is growing in importance. I think some of the residents that live closer to where you and I might sleep normally are the ones that tighten the belt a little bit stronger than those on the coast. That's interesting, Glenn. Is that just a fact that labor prices, wages are a little slower to go up here in the central part of the U.S.? Is that what's causing the squeeze? Yeah, you're asking me to speculate. So as long as I tell our listeners, that's what I'm doing. Um, this would be a little bit outside of the NBM. I can't tell you why that's happening. Um, yeah, I do think there's more exposure to higher energy costs. You know, we tend to drive a little more in the middle of the country. Um, there could be the wage component, as you alluded to, but I think the basket of goods we're buying potentially is failing to keep up with the wages because of the cost side just as much as it is the wage side. Gotcha. Gotcha. And that is speculation. I'm glad you made that clear. Of course, you don't track that in the survey itself, Glenn. But I'm curious, as you look at the month's worth of data that you've now compiled here with the meat demand monitors, your different stakeholders are looking at this data. What are some of the big picture trends? I mean, obviously, the willingness to pay is declining. Does that have you nervous about meat demand as we get into this winter? Uh, it, it does. Uh, you might remember asking me that in about May. And that's when we first started elevated discussion on inflation. Uh, so it does have me nervous. Um, I think consumers, a lot of consumers have worked through their cash savings. So that kind of you know, that safety net has been eight through for a lot of folks. And that gives me some pause. We're going to the winter where there's elevated concern on energy cost for the households. That gives me some pause. But I will emphasize uh, things like self-declared diet, right, regularly consuming meat, um, having beef or pork, like inclusion rates in your meals yesterday, those measures are staying pretty sound in the MDM. So I think folks are making an effort to keep beef and pork and other proteins in their diet, which is great. Uh, I think they're just having to be a little more economical in how they do it. So if, if we do have an ongoing demand decline, I don't think it's because the product's bad. I don't think it's because people don't want meat protein in the diet. I think it's an economic you know, affordability discussion, and that distinction is really important. It is, and I'm glad you made it. Glenn Tonser, tell our listeners one more time, where can they go for this data for the Meat Demand Monitor? Yeah, so agmanager.info is our K-State uh, Agriculture Economics Department. You can find all the information, including our new dashboard there. Fantastic, folks. Check that up. Great resource. ton of fantastic data there at agmanager.info. Thanks to Glenn Tonser, professor at Kansas State. Stick around. We'll have more AOA coming up next. We're going to talk with Caitlin Glover about yesterday's oral arguments before the Supreme Court in the Sackett versus EPA case. Stick around for more AOA. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. This is the place most people think of when they hear that a seed has been engineered for superior performance and designed with proven genetic traits. Because something like that could only come from a lab, right? But this is where Allegiant Seed by CHS comes from. It's made by farmers for farmers. Its advanced genetics and unbeatable value are proven here in their fields to make sure they do the job in yours. Talk to your CHS retailer about Allegiant Seed today or learn more at AllegiantSeed.com. Young farmers don't listen to the radio, right? Wrong. 
In a recent survey, 74% of young producers said they get their most important agricultural information from their trusted farm radio station. Surprised? Don't be. If you think about it, it makes perfect sense. Radio is the perfect companion because it goes with you everywhere. Whether you're in the shop, on the combine, or in the truck, Farm Radio is right there with you. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Well, grains, livestock, energies, the stock market all trading their way higher on Tuesday as we see the global economic factors uh, turning a bit more positive. The rebound continuing here mid-ideas that the world has reached peak monetary tightening policy. That may or may not be reality, but in the world of markets, perception is reality and market emotions ebb and flow on that perception. Everybody watching to see if that is the case. The dollar breaking down to 111 this morning with yields on 10-year treasuries trading near 3.60% here this morning. The VIX slipping below 30 as well. So some optimism out there in the broader market sector. That's spilling its way across the commodities here today with grains moving their way higher so far on Tuesday. USDA's crop progress report pegged corn harvest 20% complete nationwide as of Sunday. Soybeans 22% complete as of Sunday. And more good harvest weather continues ahead here for the next uh, week or so and that should allow more acceleration of the harvest steer nationwide a bullish factor the markets could be that not all corn has reached black layer yet some yields could be vulnerable to getting nicked by sub-freezing temperatures later this week mainly in the northern and northwestern growing areas a bearish concern in the markets though is grain movement very nervous topic right now with lower water levels on the lower mississippi river and a rail worker vote that has not yet been decided. Those are going to be factors we're watching in the market trade. Also watching the heavy fighting continuing in eastern Ukraine, where Ukrainian forces have made significant advances in two of the four regions Russia captured. That's uh, still going to be an ongoing issue to watch. Also, we're going to have a uh, flow of different customer surveys and private estimates coming out here this week, starting with StoneX's results this afternoon after the markets close. That's all going to be ahead of next week's USDA crop report on the 12th. This is AOA. I'm Jesse Allen. You're going to need me. You're going to need us. All of us. You're going to need our technical skills. Our math. Our engineering skills. You're going to need our help with your water. Your air. Your food. You're going to need our organizational skills. Our problem-solving skills. You're going to need our determination. Our honesty. Our compassion. You're going to need the next generation of leaders to face the challenges the future will bring. And we promise, we'll be there when you need us. Today, 4-H is growing the next generation of leaders. Support us at 4-H Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Well, folks, welcome back to AOA. 
Monday, earlier this week, was a very big day for agriculture. It was a very big day for any industry in this country that uses water or perhaps has connections to the navigable water system because it was the day that we had oral arguments in the Sackett's or EPA versus Sackett's case in front of the Supreme Court. This should provide some certainty to that waters of the U.S. rule that has been under hot discussion for the past, oh gosh, coming up on 20 years nearly. 16 years we've been talking about that and this is a big day progress is happening the the case is moving forward joining me today to discuss it is caitlin glover she's the director and executive director of the public lands council there at uh, in washington dc caitlin thank you so much for joining us today well thanks for having me on mike you are exactly right uh the supreme court's uh hearing the oral arguments in sackett versus epa uh, yesterday certainly was uh, an interesting start to the week. It was indeed, Caitlin, and I'd like to take a step back. We've got a lot of listeners who might not be plugged into federal water policy. So this case stretches back many years. Give us the Cliff's Notes version. What are the Sacketts suing the EPA for? Oh, so this is a great question. And there is a long history, Mike, you're right. Uh, and so, so I'm going to start on the regulatory side. Uh, the Waters of the United States definition has been a pretty central uh, has played a really central role in the EPA's determination of how to implement their jurisdiction. Uh, essentially, the waters of the United States uh, identifies which waters that the federal government has the ability to regulate. And so what we've seen since really about 2015 is, is an ongoing whiplash uh, back and forth of where that jurisdiction lies. And this jurisdiction is what's at question in the Sackett versus EPA case. Uh, there was this couple in Idaho, the Sacketts, uh, and, and their story started in, in 2004 uh, when they uh, purchased a, a lot in, in Idaho, uh, and on that lot uh, there were there were some wetlands, uh, and the jurisdiction uh, of the federal government uh, is really central here. The EPA asserted that they had the jurisdiction to regulate uh, these wetlands because they had a significant nexus or, or a linkage to a navigable waters navigable waterway um, and, and ultimately that's uh, what, what the court is, is still trying to rectify. Now this case is an interesting one because the Supreme Court considered parts of this case in 2012 before sending it back to a lower court uh, but it's made its way back up to the to the court again and, and what we heard yesterday uh, was really the the court uh, trying to to rectify how uh, or address rather how the EPA determines what is jurisdictional. There are a couple different tests that have evolved from you know, Supreme Court rulings uh, over time. Um, and the application or the combination of, of those tests is really where we saw the, the justices focus yesterday. So let's talk about those two tests, because the Sacketts, I understand, are hoping the EPA uses the Scalia test, and the EPA, of course, is hoping they use the other test. And uh, there's a lot of Scalia friends, or I would assume fellow thinkers on the Supreme Court right now. Caitlin, how does that change the oral argument uh, process, or does it? So, so I think that's a really great question. And, and I'm, I'm going to throw a, a couple different numbers at you before we talk necessarily about, about those tests. Now, the, the Supreme Court has considered uh, these 
the the, the WOTUS definition a few different times, four different times, in, including this current case. Um, and that's important because prior consideration, especially the Rapanos case, uh, it really is is part of the the, the core of of what our discussion here is today. Um, there are are two different tests that have evolved over time. One is the significant nexus test. Uh, which provides us some physical indicators of, of whether a, a feature uh, would be significant in terms of, of long-term flow, right? Whether there's enough water uh, in that feature, uh, there are the physical attributes that would indicate that it's, it's supplying water in, in a meaningful way to, to a jurisdictional waterway. And Caitlin, just to pause for a quick second on that rule, the challenge is that some expert at EPA has to make the distinction whether or not the flow rate is enough to qualify for a significant nexus, right? It includes a lot of mm, other folks' expertise to make the decision. It's not just a simple yes or no, right? Oh, oh, absolutely. And, and, and really, I think that's, that's sort of the, the core of, of what the, the court heard yesterday, because whether you're talking about that significant nexus piece or the relative permanent piece, a permanent piece, um, whether, you know, which is the, the volume of water that goes through uh, that, 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 that feature, um, and, and you're making a, a subjective assessment of, about whether it's making a notable contribution to downstream water quality, Considering those two things independently is incredibly subjective. And so what we've seen over time is not only has the EPA, the Army Corps of Engineers, but mostly the EPA, they've, they've failed to, to apply sort of a holistic standard, instead um, applying a piece of whether it's you know, relatively permanent or whether it has significant nexus um, as an either or exercise. That's what's created a, a significant level of, of subjectivity. And, and this sort of gets us into a part of NCBA's other advocacy, uh, Mike. And, and when, you know, while the Supreme Court is considering this case, while they're asking these kinds of questions, the EPA is going through a rulemaking process to, to sort of answer some of these questions, to, to redefine waters of the United States on their own since they rolled back the, the Trump administration's rule. And, and NCB has been really clear that not only do you need to answer the question of significant nexus, but you also need to answer the question of relative permanence. Take the best parts of both of those tests that came out of prior Supreme Court decisions to be able to make a more, a more holistic determination, a determination that's going to be more predictable for cattle producers, but, but also for the agency as well. And Caitlin, that rulemaking on the new WOTUS is ongoing even while the Supreme Court is deciding this case. Is there the potential that the EPA could roll out a new WOTUS interpretation ahead of the Supreme Court, then have to scrap it all again if the justices rule one way or another? That, that, that's exactly right. That's exactly our concern. And in fact, NCBA has, has urged uh, urged EPA together with more than 1,600 cattle producers from 44 different states. We've urged them to pause that rulemaking because when you see the whiplash, and 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 that's not hyperbole, Mike. It's it's we've seen a change in WOTUS definition on average once every 3.8 years, uh, and and when you see that back and forth, the changes that that you know you are you are you are turning a really big ship with the federal government, and, and that is not you know, immediately nimble enough to respond to those changes. So, so what you see is a, a lot of uncertainty. 
if the EPA proceeds with their with, with publishing a final rule on the waters of the United States question, um, they're likely to do so, you know, this this, this fall or this winter. Um, that would be before the Supreme Court would issue their decision, uh, a decision which will necessarily require EPA to sort of go back and, and make some changes. The last thing I, we want to see is EPA finalize a rule that they're just going to have to change in, in really short order. Yeah, yeah, not the best use of time, potentially. Our NCBA has asked for the EPA to pause that, but that rulemaking is ongoing. Caitlin, before we let you go, we did have those oral arguments yesterday. NCBA has submitted a 30-page uh, amicus brief here to the Supreme Court. What did you learn during the arguments yesterday? Do we have a sense of what the justices are thinking? So, so I, I think that's a, a really great question. We did submit that amicus brief uh, being really consistent that we want something clear and predictable, but also being really clear about what shouldn't be regulated under the combination of, of you know, the best parts of these two different tests. I think what you saw from the questions uh, of the justices yesterday, uh, I, I think because six of, of the nine of them are considering this question of what is a jurisdictional water for the first time, um, they were really trying to figure out for themselves where these outer bounds are going to be. We saw a, a very, very interesting set uh, of discussion, uh, a set of questions, and a discussion around, you know, where, where sort of where do you draw the line uh, in terms of jurisdiction? Um, and you know, and there, there was a comment at the end of the day uh, as well that you know this is this is a this is a big deal. Uh, there has been regulatory uncertainty. There's been judicial uncertainty. And so the pressure on the court to, to sort of get this right um, is, is both self-imposed, but it's, it's real for cattle producers, for, for landowners, uh, and for those who do conservation like cattle producers do across this country. I think we saw that the, the justices take that very serious, seriously yesterday. Uh, and, and certainly I took away that uh, whatever we're going to see out of this court uh, is is going to be uh, is going to be very interesting when we we see it uh, early next year. And so that's my question on the next steps. Now that oral arguments have proceeded from the Sackett's perspective, from the interested parties' perspective, is the work done on this case? And now it's just up to the Supremes to do their thinking and render a judgment. So, so the Supreme Court will will go through the rest of it, its fall docket, and there are a number of cases uh, coming up over over the next couple of weeks that they'll hear and that they'll deliberate. Um, we do expect the decision uh, to to be issued early next year. Um, but in terms of the work being done, Mike, no, that the work's not done. Uh, we you know we submitted our amicus to the to the Supreme Court, uh, but that regulatory process, that crucial piece uh, in in how our producers uh, feel the effects of the federal government. The work is ongoing, uh, making clear to the administration that they should pause their rulemaking, being really clear about our priorities. Uh, but the work is never done with the agencies, with Congress, uh, and, and if necessary, in the court. Absolutely. The battles are always ongoing for those trying to produce sustainable, safe, and delicious American beef. Caitlin Glover, Executive Director of the Public Lands Council and the NCBA Natural Resources Director, thanks for joining us today. And folks, stick around. We're going to talk cattle again with Chris Swift of the Swift Trading Company. We're going to see where these markets might go as the week moves ahead. Stick around for more AOA. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. 
What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans, and if left untreated, can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice U.S. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org. 54. So, basically, it's too late to start saving for retirement, right? Not right. Starting to save, even in your 50s, can really make a difference. Well, right now, saving seems hard to wrap my head around. Plus, with the way this year's been going... (laughs) Hey, listen, it's okay. You still got this. Just go to aceyourretirement.org. It's an online tool from AARP that can help you get your retirement savings on track no matter your age. It's free and only takes about three minutes. I like three minutes. Yeah. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll chat with Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. Just answer a few questions and you'll get a personalized plan and tips to help boost your retirement savings. Tips that are easy to understand and tailored to your lifestyle. I like that too. Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. Just head to aceyourretirement.org and make your plan to start saving for retirement. Thanks. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. This is Around the Table, where we explore the benefits of cooperative ownership. This week, C.J. Blue, first vice chairman on the CHS Board of Directors, joins us to talk about the future of cooperatives. C.J., how are cooperatives evolving to meet the challenges farmers and ranchers face today? Cooperatives have and will continue to need to evolve and make investments to keep up with the producer. You think about uh, the speed at which crops get planted and harvested today, the pace that it goes. In order to remain relevant, cooperatives are going to have to continue to make investments in technology, infrastructure, and talent just to keep up. CJ, how do you anticipate the way producers work with co-ops to change as we go to the future? I think it's going to continue to evolve, and and the speed at which change happens, as they say, just continues to increase and get more and more rapid. But you know, I see more technology coming into play and, and um, the relationships that we have are still going to be those relationships, those human relationships that we have and the way do we, we deliver value in the cooperative system. But technology is going to be a huge part of that. I think, you know, as I said, that, you know, this, this close relationship with the producer is going to continue to be more and more important as we start to plan for what those needs are and think about, you know, not only now, but what, what, you know, what the future is, what that producer is going to need going forward. And so those are some of the things that I see us uh, maybe working differently or, or continue to involve and, and work on as we go forward. CJ, you serve in leadership in the cooperative system. Why do you commit your time and your energy to cooperatives? Well, I, for one thing, I'm passionate about the cooperative system. I, as I said, I, you know, I think that farmer ownership in the marketplace, like I like to say, is extremely important. Um, that cooperative system to be relevant and viable here, you know, not just for my kids, but for my grandkids. That's CJ Blue, first vice chairman of the CHS Board of Directors. CJ, thanks for joining us this week. Thank you, Mike. And thank you for joining us around the table. Learn more about the benefits of cooperative ownership at cooperativeownership.com.
And we're live here outside the Perez family home just waiting for the... And there they go. Almost on time this morning. Mom is coming out the front door strong with a double arm kid carry. Looks like dad has the bags. Daughter is bringing up the rear. Oh, but the diaper bag wasn't closed. Diapers and toys are everywhere. Ooh, but mom has just nailed the perfect car seat buckle for the toddler. And now the eldest daughter, who looks to be about nine or 10, has secured herself in the booster seat. Dad zips the bag closed and they're off. Ah, but looks like mom doesn't realize her coffee cup is still on the roof of the car. And there it goes. Oh, that's a shame. That mug was a fam favorite. Don't sweat the small stuff. Just nail the big stuff. Like making sure your kids are buckled correctly in the right seat for their age and size. Learn more at NHTSA.gov slash the right seat. Visit NHTSA.gov slash the right seat. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. <laughs> Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, folks. Thanks for tuning in to AOA here today. You know, October 1st marked the start of a new month and a new quarter. And for some trading entities, it marked the start of a new fiscal year. And so I wanted to get a sense of how the industry was looking ahead in the cattle market. Third quarter ended, of course, there in September, and it was not a very good end to the week. December live cattle that last week in September down seven, eight bucks. Who turned around a little bit to start this week. Joining us now to share his insight on what's happening in these markets is Chris Swift of the Swift Trading Company there in Nashville, Tennessee. Chris, thanks for joining us today. Good morning, Mark. Certainly appreciate you being here. Let's talk about what we saw here that last week in September. Chris, that market just fell apart. Was that outside money positioning for that end of the third quarter? You know, I think, Mike, I think it still has more to do with the drought than anything. We had, our industry had built up the idea that we could expand this summer. And unfortunately, we just didn't have the moisture to be able to heal the pastures, produce enough hay. And so it looks like that, that that desire to expand has been quelled for just a little while until we can get some moisture to return. All right. So when, of course, as we get into this time of year, it's tough to, to foresee moisture out there in the countryside. Chris, what does that do to investors and traders? What did we learn from the commitment of trader last Friday? Well, it looks like that the commercials are starting to want to own a little bit more of the fat cattle market. And, and that's clearly obvious because we are lowering our breeding herd significantly. And there is a threat that if we do uh, have the opportunity to expand, we continue to pull more cows and more heifers out of the slaughter mix. And that makes for a little bit less beef production out there. So that's what everyone in the industry is kind of hoping for is that we get this expansion and allows beef prices or in other phrase that allows cattle prices to come back up just a little bit. Well, Chris, are, are we going to get that expansion? Are we yet seeing mama cows pulled out of that line headed to the, uh, the sale barn in town? Yeah, they, they're still moving. The cow slaughter is elevated. The heifer slaughter remains elevated. And, and there's just really honestly nothing that can be done right now as far as trying to expand I, the likelihood of someone going out and investing a large amount of capital to buy the cows have to buy more hay have to rent more land you know we don't have any uh, wheat pastures to graze off of yet 
So the industry is still hurting right now for some outside feedstuffs that would normally be lower than what we're having to feed them right now. That's a really good point, Chris. And it doesn't look like the input situation is going to get a lot better in the short term for folks right now, feed yard operators who are looking at refilling those pens. How do you manage that risk here looking ahead to first, second quarter 2023? You know, probably feed costs and fuel are going to be as important, if not as much as the actual cattle themselves. We already have seen a $17 break lower in the feeder market futures. About a seven dollar break in the index, so we know that they're kind of taking dollars into consideration here about how much they want to spend. And now we see corn rallying back again, right at the seven dollar level this morning at six ninety six and three quarters. So that in itself probably has to be something that I can do a lot about. When I go out and bid for cattle out in the sale bar, I got to bid against somebody else, and I may or may not get it. But I can always go in there and hedge that corn, get a Ford contract on it, or, or somehow or another wrap up that feed cost and some of those energy uses. So now at least I have those prices fixed, and then I work against those to whatever I can pay for the feeder cash. That makes sense, Chris. I want to turn our focus here over to the live cattle market. At any chance we can see that live cash price get up to 150 here in the coming weeks, or is the trend to the downside now? Uh, the trends to the downside, we're, we broke through 260, then 250, and now we're around the 244 level for boxes, and I don't really see a bottom in sight until maybe around 220, maybe 225, something like that. The consumer is overwhelmed. Retail beef prices have not come down hardly any at all, and what we're starting to see is the packer slow the processing speeds just a little bit, hopefully trying to back cattle up a little bit, make them lower while keeping, even though the boxes have dropped significantly, they keep that top end price at the retail level as high as they possibly can to make that margin. That's what all these retail NV sellers are about, is making that margin. They certainly are. I mean, that's the name of the game for all of us, Chris, if we want to stay in business long term. Again, looking out at that fat margin longer term into 2023, there's been a lot of expectation, as you mentioned, for that price explosion as that demand comes back. Chris, is that fading in likelihood? Um, it, it kind of is today. We're, we're, the markets, uh, outside market forces with financials and the world uh, issues that we've got going on right now, has really started to impact consumer greatly. We have seen some price declines in fuel over the last couple of months. We've seen some lower prices in other markets the last couple of months. These past two days have shot interest rates down. They shot the equities markets higher and seemingly may have reversed the energy markets back to the upside again. Uh, we put on quite a bit of premium in the crude oil markets, the, the diesel fuel and the gasoline markets, and all those, unfortunately, go directly to impact the consumer's discretionary spending habits. Lots and lots on our plate here as we look ahead to the year for the protein industry. Chris Swift of Swift Trading Company there in Nashville, Tennessee. Chris, thanks for joining us today. Always appreciate your insights. Thank you very much, Mike.
And folks, Chris is the author of the Shoot in the Bull newsletter. You can check that out. You can find it on Bar Chart each week. Before we let you go for the day, I did want to let you know we did have a survey out this morning, the JOLT survey, the job openings and labor turnover survey, one of the metrics the Fed uses as they are figuring up what the interest rate policy should be. And it measures the openings in jobs there across the economy and job openings plummeted in August. They were down substantially month over month. And the consensus is, this might be a piece of information the Fed could use to slow their aggressive rate hike moves. We'll continue to watch those markets as they go forward and all markets as they relate to agriculture. Folks, thanks so much for tuning in to AOA today. Tomorrow, we are going to talk low water levels on America's Midwest river system. And we're also going to talk the spread of spine diseases with our friend, Dr. Paul Sunberg. Tune in tomorrow for more AOA. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Smart stays on the road. That's why it's in your engine. Because you wouldn't settle for subpar performance. Senex Maxtron synthetic diesel engine oils give you the smartest oil for the toughest conditions. These premium oils maintain 80% of their viscosity throughout the drain interval for superior engine performance across extreme temperatures. That horizon looks good with the competition behind you. Senex Maxtron diesel engine oils. Oil that runs smart. The landscape of media has changed and people are more skeptical than ever about where they get their news and information. While major news outlets show decreasing credibility, your local farm radio station still shows strong marks. In a recent survey, farmers rated information from their farm broadcasters as almost twice as reliable as major news outlets. Farm radio continues to be transparent, honest, and trustworthy. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. You are not your diagnosis. A medical chart is not your identity. And vision loss does not define you. Your drive shows who you are. And you are not alone. Because we are driven too. To be a beacon of strength. A champion of courage. An advocate for hope. You are not alone. Because we are stronger together. We drive the research for the cures we are finding. We're fighting macular degeneration, retinitis pigmentosa, Usher syndrome, and the entire spectrum of blinding retinal diseases. We fund. We fight. We, we win. win. We, we, we are the Foundation, foundation Fighting blindness. blindness. Together, we are fighting blindness. Join the fight at fightingblindness.org.